0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct, featuring Steven Pinker.
1: Steven Pinker is a Johnston family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He conducts research on language, cognition, and social relations, and writes for publications such as the New York Times, Time, and The Atlantic. He is one of foreign policy's world top 100 public intellectuals and times 100 most influential people in the world today. I'm really delighted that he's so generously agreed to give us some time, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Stephen, it's very kind of you to give us some time. In many ways, uh, you know, we're universes apart. I'm on the other side of the world, and um Uh, I've had a different set of life experiences, but some of the things that you say and do, I find really fascinating and engaging. Uh, And in a way, I'd like to start with one of them. In a world, and you talk about this uh, in some of your commentary, where we get all the bad news and it makes you feel terrible and that nothing's going well because that's what the news is. We overlook the astounding progress that on so many fronts we've made, especially over the last 15 years, uh, I am deeply invested in agricultural research, as some of my listeners will know, and the extension of that internationally has lifted staggering people out of poverty. We're feeding another five billion mouths every day, as you and I speak. We've dramatically reduced malnutrition, stunting of children, but you never hear about it. Longevity's increased, educational opportunities. That's something you talk about with great excitement, and I share that excitement with you
2: yes it is one of my my themes it comes uh although i'm not an agronomist i'm a cognitive psychologist but i am interested in people's perception of the world and as a cognitive psychologist i know that there is a a uh, an unfortunate chemistry between the nature of news and the nature of the human mind namely news is about stuff that happens not stuff that doesn't happen so if there's not a famine that isn't news if there is a famine that is news uh If there's a place that is not attacked by terrorists uh, on a given day, that's not news. If If there is a terrorist attack, that is news. So we don't hear about all of the things that go well precisely because nothing bad happens. We also don't hear about the things that happen gradually that increase by a few percentage points a year they're sometimes compound, such as the decimation of hunger, of famine, of stunting, of malnutrition, the increase of, of yields, the decrease of the need for fertilizer and water to produce a given amount of food. They creep up on us. They can transform the world stealthily, but there's never a Thursday in October that we read about it as a headline. Now, if you combine that with the way the, the human mind works, which is that we... Uh, When we judge risk and danger, we don't do the math. We just remember examples, anecdotes, narratives, images. It's called the availability bias. That is that our sense of probability and risk is driven by how easily we can remember an example. So if we can think of a terrorist attack, of an invasion, of a, a grisly murder, of a famine, of a disease outbreak, that affects the direction we think the world is going. And I've had this conversation with journalists and I said, you, you are, your, your mission statement, your, your meaning and purpose in life is to inform people and you're failing because if you serve up a non-random sample of the worst things that happen every day, you're going to misinform people about which way the world is going. You say, yeah, yeah, but you don't understand. People, you know, they, they, they love you know, uh, narratives, stories, pictures. No one will tolerate statistics or graphs. And I say, well, you know, your sports pages have an awful lot of statistics, and people read them every day, but the the weather section has has, has plenty of data. The business pages have commodity prices and stock prices. Why shouldn't people be able to consume the news, do the same thing that they consume when they read the sports page, and have a set of indicators of the world, such as starvation deaths, longevity, uh, deaths by homicide, carbon emissions? And not all of these things are getting better. Some get worse, but we should know which way they're going. We shouldn't just hear about stories, incidents, anecdotes.
1: Well, we're going to talk in a moment about rationality. So if I can say up front, two things strike me as irrational. One is this obsession with the bad that you've just outlined. The other is that having worked with many wonderful people who do incredible things internationally out of this country and in concert with people from other countries, often I think they're a cynic could say they're not acting rationally, there's nothing in it for them, they're doing it for others, which raises all sorts of issues of altruism, and even in the end, good and bad impulses. Um, but can I ask you, what, how would you describe, in your words, rationality, why you think it's so important, uh, and, and what's its relationship with being morally good?
2: So uh, rationality is the use of knowledge to attain a goal. Um, and uh, it is relative to the goal. There's nothing. No act is rational or irrational by itself, except in so far as it either um, it, it figures out a way to get you to the goal or or, or not. The question of whether it's um, moral um, depends on what the goal is. So you could use rationality to attain all kinds of evil goals: how to swindle someone, how to destroy something, how to how to conquer territory in a war, how to eliminate a uh, people, how to enslave people, there could be rational means of pursuing those goals. But the thing about rationality is you can always pump up a level and then um, ask for the rational basis of the goal. <clears throat> and as long as you're a social creature and your well-being depends on others, then uh, and, and you have to get buy-in from other people, then you've got to have a goal that is not just selfish, not just self-serving, but that Everyone can share. If you say, well, we should all have the goal of not harming me, um, other people would say, well, yeah, but what about me? Once you start taking everyone's interests into account, all the potential participants in this conversation, then it pushes you towards goals that are inherently moral, such as the well being of everyone, since anything smaller than that can't be defended as soon as you have to make your case to someone else. Now, you could say it, but they don't have to take you seriously. Now, if you're the you know, the supreme dictator, if you're the you know, galactic overlord, you just don't care about other people's buy-in, you just have the raw power to get what you want, well, you don't have to be moral. You can just exploit everyone. But uh, then, of course, they have a, an incentive to, uh, to, 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 to eliminate you, and it would be too late for you to say, hey, well, you know, d- don't kill me, don't wipe me out. You've already taken yourself out of that discussion of morality if you're just wielding brute force. As long as you're um, engaging other people's uh, cooperation for anything, that forces the goal to be one that that, uh, everyone shares. It forces it to be a moral goal. Well, that's why if you uh, look at definitions of morality over the centuries from great thinkers, they all tend to revolve around this notion of impartiality, of interchangeability, of perspectives. It can't just be me. You've got the golden rule. You've got the categorical imperatives from from Kant. You've got John Rawls' um, uh, uh, original position—the the, the um, idea that you don't know which body you're going to be born into, so you've got to decide on rules that be good for for uh, everyone. Uh, you've even got the way we teach morality to small children, namely, anyway, how would you like that if he did that to you? So, whenever you exchange. Um, vantage points, perspectives, whenever you say it can't just be about you, if it is, why should I take it seriously? Uh, Then that pushes you toward moral goals. Well,
1: um, one of the lively comments, uh, bits of commentary that I saw uh, online, uh, you were making the observation that, you know, most of us want to be healthy, wealthy and wise, and if we think it through sensibly, we'll do that in ways that achieve that goal. But as I listened to it, I thought to myself, I can really relate to that, except to say that one of the things that really strikes me is that you can be um, knowledgeable without being wise. You can't be wise without knowledge. And we seem to divorce the two. What is wisdom as opposed to simply being clever and having a lot of facts at your disposal?
2: Yeah, so I don't think there's a standard definition of wisdom, but I tend to think of it as um, setting goals that give you um, satisfaction, pleasure, fulfillment in the long run, rather than here and now. One of the ways, the reasons that we often call people irrational, sometimes we call ourselves irrational, is not so much that we aren't um, uh, clever enough to pursue goals, but the goals that we pursue are ones that give us a little bit of pleasure now at the expense of much greater pleasure in the long run. We blow our stack and it feels really good to get it off your chest, but then you poison a relationship. We gorge on food that then you know, makes us fat or unhealthy. We blow our paycheck on some you know, bobble or gadget and we'd be better off saving it to pay the rent in, in, in a month's time. Uh, we, people succumb to you know, sexual temptations that get them into trouble for all kinds of reasons. So all of these are sometimes rational ways of pursuing a goal, but it's a goal that gives you a little bit of pleasure now at the expense of much greater pleasure over the course of your life. So I think we often call wisdom the setting of goals that do us uh, more good over the course of our lives. I think that also tends to blend into goals that are moral in the sense that they don't just maximize you know, my goal, but also everyone else's goals.
1: I'm just thinking to myself, um, uh, I understand and uh, hear where you're coming from, and I can see the attractiveness of it, but it immediately begs the question as to why, when the arc of the last 50 years, as we've just discussed, has been broadly positive, you'd have to say over the last 10 or 15 years, there have been some really disturbing developments. You actually referred to it in a brilliantly written, I wish I had your communication skills, uh, commentary commentary. on um, Cynical Theories, the book written by, uh, critic, uh, by uh, Helen Puckrose and James Lindsay. And you said, uh, many people are nonplussed by the surge of wokery, social justice, warfare, intersectionality, identity politics that spilled out of academia and inundated other spheres of life. Where did it come from? What ideas are behind it? This book explores, and uh, this is what you said, the surprisingly shallow intellectual roots of the movements that appear to be engulfing our culture, um what on earth is going wrong? How, uh, how have we so quickly in Western academia, it seems to me, moved to a point where you mentioned the golden rule? We've switched that around now. It's all about radical or sort of uh, self-indulgent autonomy, and I will be who I feel I am.
2: Yeah, it's I, what I think was the ideals of the Enlightenment that I... Extolled in my book *Enlightenment Now*, aren't particularly intuitive. They don't come naturally to people. The idea that, for first of all, that for any question in principle, you could find out the answer if you engage in disinterested, objective inquiry. If we pool our knowledge, if we can criticize each other, um, and the idea that what is the the, the uh, ultimate moral goal is the betterment of all of humanity, and that the way to make humanity better off is to acquire and apply knowledge. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's what I would consider to be the, the major lesson of the Enlightenment. But it, um, it's, it, it, it isn't the way we naturally think, we humans. We naturally think that outside our everyday experience, you know, is there petrol in the car? Is there food in the fridge? Are the kids ready to go out to school? Our kind of concrete here and now existence. Here people are perfectly... Uh, willing to accept that there are some things that are objectively true and some things are objectively false. Either there's petrol in the car or there isn't. You better know which it is because if there isn't, you try to go anywhere you can't. So reality will force you to be objective. But naturally, intuitively, we, we humans don't think that there is a fact of the matter, a true or false proposition about things like the origin of fortune and misfortune. Why are some people healthy, some people sick. Why are some people rich? Some people poor. Uh, what really happened, um, in the, uh, halls of power in, in, palaces and presidential residences 50 years ago or hundred years ago? What is the, where did the universe come from? Where did the planet come from? Where did our species come from? Uh, where did animals and trees and mountains come from? These kind of cosmic questions, uh, uh, we just don't intuitively think can have objective answers. Science tells us that it can, but science is a recent invention, the scientific revolution in the Enlightenment. And intuitively just think this is the, a matter of, of myth, of story, of moral uplift. We should all promote theory that would make people good people as opposed to the one that is objectively correct and that we can test. So when the Enlightenment comes along and says... Um, it's not a question of comforting myths, of nice stories, uplifting tales. Some things are true, some things are false, and we should try to find out. It, it doesn't sink in easily. Uh, I, I think it's a hard-won you know, beachhead of science and, and enlightenment institutions. But then you have, when you have an academic movement like postmodernism and critical the- theory, that says, "Yeah, yeah, you're right. There is no objective truth." It's all a bunch of narratives. It's a bunch of myths. Yes, that's a good thing. It's all too easy to believe that. It kind of meshes too easily with our own instincts. And so it will naturally push back at something that was never particularly natural to begin with, namely the Enlightenment conviction that we can understand the world and we ought to understand the world. Objectively.
1: So... We we now face a situation where right across the West, many university students are being taught, really, that that reason is just a tool for white male heterosexual domination. I mean, uh, uh, critical theory, really, uh, you know, it's best known for its critical race theory, but then you've got critical gender theory, critical queer theory, and they all posit that.
2: Not to be confused with critical thinking, but yes.
1: (laughs) Well, um,
2: unfortunately, they stole the word.
1: Well, this is a real worry. I mean, how has it happened so quickly? Can I ask you, do you really think there is such a thing as Western reason or or white reason or or male reason?
2: No. If it it were, it would not be reason, because reason, by definition, doesn't depend on the amount of melanin in the the skin of the person trying to do the reasoning or the chromosomes of the person trying to do the reasoning. Uh, 3 plus 2 equals 5 is true for everyone, everywhere, always. Uh, And as soon as your mode of reasoning depends on your identity, it's no longer reasoning. It's no longer rationality. And the ultimate test of that is if someone were to claim that reasoning is a tool of white domination, um, you can say, well, is what you just said reasonable? Is what you just said true? Uh, If not, I don't have to believe it. You can mouth the, the words all you want, but you have no grounds for persuading me. As soon as they do try to persuade, you say, no, 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 this is what you ought to believe. You say, well, if I ought to believe it, you have just conceded that some things are true, that they ought to be believed and other things aren't. So reasoning, rationality, logic, objectivity, truth, it's a game that you can't get in out of because as soon as you're willing to persuade, to discuss, to argue, you've already committed yourself to truth and rationality.
1: We live in a society where a lot of people say you can't really know truth. You know, bah, what is truth? What is it? And that really worries me, not least because it strikes me that if there's no truth, if there's no principle, in the end, all that's left is power.
2: Well, that is the um, that is the logical conclusion. And um, I, I think one of the most effective ex, uh, expressions of that came in the the last chapter of of Orwell's novel 1984, where uh, the um, government uh, agent who is tormenting Winston Smith, uh, representing the uh, totalitarian regime, says exactly that. There's no truth. There is truth is whatever the party says is the truth. Uh, And so as you put it, if there's no truth, then all there is, is power. And that's that was one of Orwell's themes. So the the wedge that we have, though we mean those of us who are committed to, 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 to truth and objectivity and reason, is that as soon as you say anything about anything, you kind of already conceded that there is truth. Namely, you're trying to get us to agree to it. You're trying to say that what you're saying is true. And that is, has to be expanded and universalized, that together with the obvious fact that uh, as we began our conversation. Science and technology have done amazing stuff. They've more than doubled our lifespan. They've decimated starvation and disease and allowed us, given us smartphones and and they put us on the moon. That can't happen by mythology, by wishful thinking. To be able to do that, you must really have an understanding of how, how the world works. Now, it doesn't mean that we ever know that we have the truth. And One of the things that makes science work is that no one get ever gets to say this is the final truth. We have it. Shut up. Uh, you're not allowed to disagree. Science progresses because we never know when we have the truth. We strive for it. That's our aspiration. We have reason to believe that we can approach it. We can have degrees of belief in a hypothesis. You can say from a, on a scale of zero, I'm sure it's false to one, I'm sure it's true. We're never at zero or one, but we could be at 0.37. We could be at 0.62, and we could try to increase our confidence, uh, but we're never positive, and that's why we, science, and for that matter, democracy, uh, hinge on the ability to express opinions, to criticize, to disagree, to argue.
1: Well, let me come to the area where I know you've done a lot of work and uh, schools, universities. Can I ask the question, to what extent do you think our academic institutions today are producing citizens who have been taught to think rationally, to think critically, truly critically, as opposed to critical
2: thinking? Yeah, yes, right. Not to be confused. It's Not a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. The ones that the, um, you know, often it's the, the, the so-called critical theorists, the social justice warriors, the uh, political correctness police, who make the most noise and get the most attention and and, 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 and um, disrupt things the most. There are, though, an awful lot of people in a lot of departments, that especially in science departments, but not only in science departments, um, who are committed to the idea that, that some ideas are better than others, that. Things can be argued, they can be disputed, they can be verified, and um, they you know they tend not to hold signs and wield bullhorns and shut other people down. But they are awful lot of like in, in universities, fortunately. But on the other hand, as you say, there is an increasing trend high uh, in universities for uh, for for authorities or groups to assume that there is only one admissible opinion and that anyone else anyone who Um, uh, disagrees is uh, uh, subject to punishment or silencing. That is a deplorable trend that a number of us are are trying to push back against.
1: And uh, having you on the side of good on this is a very important thing with your sharp mind and vast experience, and I'm not saying that lightly at all. Um, We cherry pick now. I mean, what is it in our culture that particularly in the humanities, says, well, if the science agrees with our worldview, it's right. So on climate change, we must listen to the scientists. But then in this country, I'm seeing a politically driven motivation to say, but we can't have gas because it's fossil fuel. Whereas every serious scientist I know says we can't manage the transition to renewable energy without gas. So Yes, I agree with the science when it says we've got a global uh, uh, crisis uh, environmentally, but no, I don't agree with it. We can disregard it when all the scientists say we can't transit without the use of gas. In fact, I think they've declared it a renewable energy in Europe, but in this country, that's one example. Another sensitive one is is in the area of biology. Uh, I think you've experienced quite a bit of heat for merely arguing that men and women are not the same and that fact rather than discrimination, could explain some differences in social outcomes. Why is it that some, and we've touched on it, cynical theories, um, that some really absurd ideas, which do immense damage, it seems to me, arise amongst intellectuals and take off from there? What is it about intellectuals that they sometimes seem so willing to encourage people to be driven by ideology and feelings rather than science and reason?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of diversity among intellectuals, and so, um, you know, so I would want to... Is uh,
1: that a nice way of saying some are brighter than others, Stephen?
2: <laughs> some are brighter? Uh, although it's, it, Well, that, that is undoubtedly true. Although it's not just intelligence, because there can be you know, clever sillies who uh, deploy their intelligence toward a, uh, an irrational goal. Uh, so a, a few things. One of them, you know, as, as I mentioned, we shouldn't be too nostalgic for the past because there's an awful lot of error and superstition and bias in the past as, as well. Uh, our human default is that we we start out ignorant of everything, and it's uh, an arduous task to know anything. And so uh, I, I tend to, uh, to, to to relate it to an um, area we started off talking about, um, just as in If you ask why is there poverty worldwide, you're kind of asking the wrong question. Poverty is our natural state. The question we should ask is why is there wealth? And so I uh, would—I'm not the first to to say that—and that's. But I do think it's the first step to appreciate the progress that we've made. Likewise, in the realm of ideas, it's uh, the way I think of it is not so much why is there bias and ignorance and ideology and preference of storytelling over objective uh, fact. That's just the way humans work. The way I would put it is: Why is there ever science that works and objective truth and rational argument? That's what's the tough thing to to to, to implement, um, and it's 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 Sisyphean. It's a constant battle. So that's the background. In addition, there may be some things that that make intellectuals, as a profession, blind to certain things that intellectuals ought to be the first to be aware of. Uh, intellectuals tend to like top-down theories that can be verbally articulated as uh, here are a set of axioms, here's the way you deduce the consequences from them, as opposed to a more bottom-up, distributed wisdom of crowds form of rationality, which you sometimes see in the success of markets. Markets, the whole idea is no one's in charge. No one um, in in the government is telling you how many shoes of size 8 you should make this month. Uh, the companies know because they know. Get signals from how many people are trying to buy shoes of that size. Intellectuals tend to hate that because it's so ugly. You're not getting to kind of deduce it from first principles. Uh, I, the uh, the rules of a language is another example, and I, I or another example, and I, I know this because I was formerly the chair of the usage panel of America of a major dictionary, where constantly had to push back against the. Uh, People, sometimes intellectuals and scholars and and writers who would say, oh, how come you haven't ruled out this terrible error that people make? Um, And logically, you shouldn't be able to say this, you have to say that. And our attitude as dictionary makers is the language is not something that ever gets stipulated by a panel of rule givers. What dictionary editors do is they pay attention to the way Millions of people use language and they try to codify it, codify it. And, people, and, and it's amazing what we end up with. We end up with the English language with all its beauty, all its precision, all of its poetry. Not because someone designed it from a theory, but because millions of people tried to communicate. So this bottom-up aggregation of millions of interactions that results in kind of greater and greater order, greater design, greater intelligence... Uh, tends to be the kind of thing that doesn't sort of sit well with the intellectual mind I'll give you a third example and that's biological evolution Who would have thought that the process of random mutation and selection by reproductive success could give us you know eagles and, and, and uh, the, the uh, um, and, and lions and starfish and humans and all the rest don't you need someone with an engineer with the right theory to write it out and design it Well, you don't. But that's a kind of habit of thought that I I think pushes against the uh, inclination of of, uh, intellectuals to um, uh, stipulate things from grand theories.
1: Someone once commented to me that the weakness of reason is it doesn't cope well with human failings, with um, selfishness. And... I think one thing that you and I would share is a deep concern that the lack of clear thinking at the moment, we've, we've sort of been covering this, is really threatening the progress we've made in a whole lot of areas. One aspect of that seems to me to be that we're not able to juggle a lot of issues at once. Maybe that's the news cycle. But to go back to climate change for a moment, and the attempts to transit to renewable energy, One of the great threats, actually, if we're not really careful in how we do it, uh, is that uh, the, the comfortable Western world will engage in policy formation of a sort which reverses, stops and reverses the progress in lifting people out of poverty for the simple reason that available, affordable energy is critical to people in the developing world being able to get out of poverty and sustain, you know, a full belly. My question is... How does reason cope with the fact that sometimes we are so blind to reason?
2: Yes. So reason can deal with anything. That's the power of reason. You can always, if if there is, people are being irrational or or unreasonable, you can always use reason to analyze that, to step up a level, to look at the application of reason, find out what's wrong with it and uh, diagnose it and do your best to to, to, cut, to, to come up with, with uh, workarounds or, or solutions. Um, so it isn't a failure of reason in general, though it might be a failure of how you're thinking about that very problem. So indeed, when it comes to climate, uh, and uh, I tend to agree that there is, it's been badly conceived by people who could only think of how we uh, reduce emissions, period, uh, the problem being that emissions are they are, they, they are threatening because they could lead to terrible disruptions down the line. Uh, on the other hand, they are also good things if they allow people to deploy energy to grow food, to get to work, to make stuff, to make their lives better now. And so the way to analyze the problem is not just getting emissions down to zero, you know, that could be easy to go back to the Middle Ages, or well, actually it's not so easy because no one wants to go back to the Middle Ages, but it's misconceiving the problem. The problem is how do we enjoy the benefits of energy? And you can't do anything without energy, without the possibly horrendous costs of climate change. So that reconceives the problem. It is, you can't turn off coal and oil today because people would starve and poor people would stay poor and they're, they're, they're going to refuse. They're not going to stay poor.
1: And it could produce it'll produce an environmental disaster. Sorry to interrupt for a moment. In itself, I mean, people who can't feed their families are hardly going to be concerned about the environment. And there's an awful, there would be an awful lot of people in that category who could do catastrophic damage. Uh,
2: indeed, um, is 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 that gas is methane a transition? Well, it probably is better than just burning a lot of coal because um, you know, methane has much less uh, carbon. On the other hand, methane leaks are themselves a threat to the climate. And so if we're going to use gas, we've got to tighten the restrictions on leaks and, and uh, transport. So it's what someone like our own former President Donald Trump did, is, which is relax all of the uh, uh, regulations on methane pipelines and storage is insane. It's the last thing you want to do if you want to actually use methane as a transition from coal and oil on the one hand to um, uh, zero carbon energy sources in the future. But that's a bit of a digression. In general, what you need to do when you realize that the problem is not just eliminating emissions, but eliminating emissions and lifting people out of poverty and not sinking back into poverty if 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 the problem is how do we trade those off how do we achieve both then it it changes your focus the focus is then on uh, first of all on developing carbon-free abundant um, scalable and affordable sources of energy which you know i myself believe that the nuclear is uh right up there i mean together with new forms of storage for the intermittent energy from renewables like solar and wind, which by themselves can't power an economy because they don't run 24-7. Um, the, it, the innovation that gives us abundant energy that is cheaper than uh, abundant clean energy that's cheaper than dirty energy is really what we should be aiming for, because then people doing what's in their own interests, namely to capture as much energy as possible, as cheaply as possible, will also do what's best for humanity and for the planet. So that may also involve uh, a thumb on the scale of um, uh, carbon taxation, so that... uh, People pay for the damage they do by burning fossil fuels, and that's just a basic principle of economics. You get less bad stuff if you force people to pay for the bad stuff that they do. Uh, It also accelerates the transition because without any planner having to decide exactly how much energy we should allow here versus there, if there's a tax on carbon based on how much damage it does, then millions of people will make decisions toward the cheapest energy source, which will be tilted away from carbon if there's carbon taxation. And that will accelerate the transition to, uh, to, to nuclear, to renewables plus storage, uh, and, and with, possibly with, with, with methane as a transition.
1: Well, you just put what I would have said was, a very rational framework around a difficult debate. My point about the science was that we cherry-pick, we listen when it suits, and we don't listen when it doesn't. You've also, of course, held many things in balance. You know, this idea you just, uh, you know, I'm going after one aspect of this problem and I'll be so focused on that that I won't think that anything else is moral or scientific or important. Um, What has happened to our society, we've lost the ability to hold these things um, in in tension, recognising, think of a major war, the Second World War. The leaders had to deal with so many different factors, so many payoffs, so many compromises. In the end, they got to a good place, I would argue, as somebody believes in the liberal global order. Um, But it wasn't easy at the time, and they couldn't have done it if they'd just felt everything and been driven by emotion. Uh, any general comments? And in particular, do you think social media is somehow, not so much created the problem, but making it worse?
2: So uh, again, you know, I, I, I agree with you that we need more balance. Uh, we need, uh, you know, in, in general, we have to realize that their life is trade-offs and we've got to negotiate the best point along the trade-off rather than pretending the trade-off doesn't exist. It's not clear how good our Predecessors were at that. They, you know, they muddled through World War II, but there were an awful lot of mistakes made during World War II. There's probably an awful lot of needless death and damage, and not e- not even counting, of course, the, the Nazis and the Japanese, but even the Allies. There's a lot of bombing of cities that served no purpose other than to kill people. Uh, that has that served no military purpose. You know, there were errors made during the the, the waging of the war. Uh, you know, quite arguably, the detonation of nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki took the world to a place where, where we made ourselves vulnerable via an arms race after the war to, to tremendous peril. And, um, so, uh, you know, even then it's not so clear that, that people optimized rather than calling it all out just cause it's a na- it's the easiest thing to do. And it's the natural human tendency. Likewise in a lot of the urban development and, and vast expansion of, um, <clears throat> of, uh, motorways and, uh, demolition of neighborhoods in favor of uh, centrally planned uh, urban renewal and um, destroying cities so that freeways could be built through them. Our, our predecessors made an awful lot of mistakes, too. Not to mention putting lead in gasoline, uh, being far too late in controlling pollution of waterways and of the air. There, there was not exactly a weighing of the benefits of everyone driving a car everywhere with rented gasoline versus harm done to the atmosphere. So we often muddle through society will lurch in one direction and then kind of course correct. Uh, and that, that happened in the past too, and it, it's happening now, but it, what it means is this is not a reason to be complacent. It doesn't mean it all works out in the end. It works out precisely because people have this conversation. They say, hey, you're pushing far too much in one direction without considering the harm that it does. For 50 years ago, it was cars everywhere and they didn't think about pollution. Now it might be reducing emissions to zero without considering the benefits of energy, especially when it comes to poor countries. So it always involves a kind of um, a discussion a debate uh, to make sure we don't veer too much in one, in one direction. Social media can, can certainly make things worse because there's so little quality control. Uh, That is, anyone can say anything and and what it's driven by is engagement and uh, 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 competing for attention and for retweets and for um, shares, which may not necessarily align with quality and value and truth. Uh, It isn't only social media, though, Uh, at least in the United States. I don't know uh, how much this is true in uh, in, uh, Australia. We have um, politicized cable uh, news. We've got Fox News uh, on the right. We've got, uh, of course, owned by a famous Australian. We've got uh, MSNBC on the left. We also have in the, in the U.S. AM talk radio, which is hyper-partisan um, um, filter bubble of uh, people stoking each other's anger literally 24-7. So they're, 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 it's not just social media, although I think social media is part of the problem. So
1: we've got a situation where, and you just said it, you know, you've got to have a conversation. You need to bring light in. You go back to the Second World War. Those councils, when you read about them, they were considering so many aspects. There was, uh, you know, real debates about the trade-offs, the payoffs. This new absolutism that we see in some sections now of our community means that a lot of good people feel they they self-censor. They shut themselves down. Um, and, and you stop and think, one area of, I, I can't, Come to grips with the fact that we have um, here in Australia, academics and student activists who consider anyone, academics included, who don't affirm gender ideology uh, ideology to be so dangerous that they'll shut them out of campus. And yet it's obviously a really important debate today. It's a very heated debate, admittedly, but it's a very important one. You know, women in sport, for example, uh, you've seen in your, in your country just how difficult that will be. And And how often the response is purely emotional, uh, rather than sit down and talk through the obvious problems here uh, in relation to simple fairness, uh, uh, you know, in sport. Um, How, you know, I suppose it's a question of freedom of speech. Are we not endangering reason by attacks on freedom of speech? So that now uh, young people will often say, Free uh, speech only, should only be appropriate, not free. Isn't that very dangerous? And what do we do about
2: it? Yeah, I think it is dangerous. Um, I think it involves, um, uh, you know, the case has to be made as to why we need free speech. Namely, no one's infallible. No one's omniscient. People in the past thought that they were, were certain that they were correct. And we now know they were wrong. And when they repressed criticism, they locked in error. Uh, we should not do that. It depends. There, there is a built-in problem that often when you, you can have a uh, minority faction of noisy and aggressive activists who can often impose their will because other people have better things to do with their time than to push back. Uh, people can be intimidated into silence if there is a regime where not supporting something means that you yourself are are considered part of the problem, and so you can get. Pathological beliefs locked in if there is punishment of of, the little boys who say the emperors make it. Um, So it's, and I don't think there's an easy solution because of these complex group dynamics of minorities being able to shut down majorities through the threat of intimidation. But it does mean that people with some degree of of, of courage and principle have to push back, particularly, I think the people in charge of our universities the, the, the deans the rectors the provosts the presidents the the grown-ups who should not be allowed to just take the easy way out and just capitulate to the noisiest protesters just because they want to make the trouble go away um, but they should be held accountable to defending policies that uh, are defensible and these include allowing for the expression of uh, unpopular opinions i i'm, I'm doing that with a group of my colleagues here at Harvard, we you have a, uh, an initiative about to be announced any day now, can't really say much more than that, but that um, uh, uh, it's up to the stakeholders in these institutions to constantly make the case, push back, um, uh, entrench, solidify principles of uh, intellectual freedom, because that's the only way our species progresses.
1: Interesting, isn't it, that... Um... The skill of debating, I don't know about your country, but schools used to place a lot of emphasis on it. So, you know, you'd have two teams and they'd have to present two sides of an argument and often you didn't agree with the side that you're asked to argue, but it forced you to grapple with the issues. We don't seem to do that structured debate very well anymore.
2: I'm not, you know, so I know know you're referring to it. You know, I myself actually am not a big fan of formal Oxford-style debates with a proposition and two teams and a winner and a loser, just because it engages, It's. it's I don't think it's the best way to seek truth. It turns it into a combat sport. It, I think it, it, it encourages cheap shots and what we call debating tricks and clever verbal sleight of hand. Uh, on the other hand, debate in the wider sense of open-minded exchange of ideas, and disagreement is absolutely vital. Uh, so most scientific debates, for example, are not done with the Oxford rules of the you know, two minutes for the just said the proposition, two minutes for the negation of the proposition, and then a one minute rebuttal, and a rebuttal to the rebuttal, and thumbs up, thumbs down. That's that is not the way scientific debate works. It often is done in writing, uh, even if, when it is done live, it's less structured. People are able to say, well, that's not exactly what I mean. The, that proposition states it too crudely. This is a more subtle way of stating it that I am willing to defend. So that's the kind of debate that I do think we need more of. Maybe for high school kids, that kind of structured debate as a team sport is, is good training. But I generally uh, turn down invitations to take part in that. those uh, yes and no Oxford style debates.
1: Actually, you may, I must say that's a pretty compelling argument. Uh, you know, I sometimes tune into those Oxford debates uh, and you get the impression that sometimes it just breeds a certain sort of smug triteness.
2: That, exactly. And, you know, cheap shots and little put, put downs and uh, so you it's, it's not my style. But on the, the, the broader sense of debating, absolutely. The more the better.
1: I wonder whether our ability to think through these things isn't uh, somewhat being—it's somewhat at risk from the extraordinary development of technology. And, and you and I have agreed how, how terrific a lot of that has been in lifting people's life stories. Um, but I wonder whether technology—and uh, I'm thinking here in part of AI—is um, there a danger of it becoming so advanced and so prevalent over time that our capacities, you know, for reason for interaction, for sorting through problems, if you like, for retaining control of our lives and our society, um, is somehow damaged. We outsource too much to technology. We become too reliant on, on uh, others, if you like, including um, uh, the technological sector, to do too much for us.
2: Well, I think any technology does pose risk because anything you do has multiple effects, some good, some bad, and so there are, there are trade-offs. Uh, it's, uh, uh, that means there's no way of predicting whether the good will necessarily outweigh the bad. In the case of artificial intelligence, there's fantastic scope for for human betterment, uh, but there, there can also be a lot of mischief. And in the case of, say, the, the AI that has recently uh, appeared in the news, namely the large language models, the chatbots like ChatGPT, it's not clear that the good that they're doing is outweighed uh, by the potential for misinformation and deception. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the way that AI should have gone. On the other hand, things like automatic um, translation. Has been a tremendous boon. speech recognition has been a huge boon. if there's if we get self-driving autonomous vehicles that will be a huge boon if we have better um, reading of x-rays better diagnosis of diseases better discovery of drugs uh all of these have potential huge um, uh, benefits if we could put an end to dangerous boring uh, uh drugs like jobs and have them done by robots and put human Uh, intelligence to better use. Uh, And if they just do mischief, that is better at impersonation and deep fakes uh, and uh, uh, disinformation, then that would be a case of technology doing doing harm. not so easy to judge whether the harm outweighs the good.
1: Reflecting on the experience of our young people going forward in prosperous democratic countries today, can I ask you... um, how well placed do you think they're going to be, uh, you know, to uh, take up positions in research institutions, in legislatures, in educational institutions, entertainment and the media? How, how optimistic are you about the future, given that, it, you know, our children and our grandchildren are the ones who are going to take it forward? Uh, how well equipped have they been for it, and especially in view of the challenges we now face?
2: Yes, yeah, so, it's uh, you know, hard to say. In in many ways, it's a you know, the, it's the best ed- educated generation in history. They have all the stuff that we had, plus all the stuff that's been discovered since then. Um, they've got fantastic tools such as the, the World Wide Web and perhaps uh, AI tools for digesting large literatures. Um, there's uh, Often, new ways of thinking among some sectors of, of uh, younger communities. For example, uh, uh, away from the uh, kind of pugilistic, defend your position at all costs style of intellectual debate that, uh, that you and know, I probably grew up with. To uh, an idea that people should qualify their beliefs by how um, uh, what the degree of confidence is, as opposed to I believe this to the bitter end. People trying to credit their critics by, as they say, steel manning as opposed to straw manning them. Uh, people being more familiar with tools like Bayesian reasoning. There are a lot of younger people who, for whom this is more second nature. Unfortunately, these tend not to be the, the social justice warriors, the cancel culture people, the, uh, the, the identity politicians. Uh, it's more the rationality community. But it is Something a, a, a positive development of people that tend to be uh, young on average, <laughs> young, younger than you and me. So the seeds are there. Which predominates uh, is hard to say. I think there's uh, and you know and there are worrying uh, some worrying developments contrary to the prediction of about ten or fifteen years ago that students brought up in the politicized um, cauldron of campuses. Uh, uh, where, where they uh, think they can censor and shut down debate and call people racists, uh, well, they'll soon meet up with the real world. They'll go and be hired in corporations and newsrooms and they'll, they'll, they'll learn how the world works. Uh, unfortunately, as, as one columnist put it, we all live on campus now and far from being um, kind of brought back into moderation by these institutions, they have started to transform these institutions. And so we've often had news organizations, publishing houses and universities and corporations uh, being turned into um, uh, you know, woke social justice police states rather, uh, as the younger generations uh, infiltrate them. Uh, on the other hand, there are always uh, rationality and objectivity have some built in advantages, which is why I don't think they uh, uh, we, we should never despair, even if it seems like the forces of unreason are are, are predominating. And that is, as uh, the famous saying goes, reality is that which, sh- uh, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. The laws of logic are always the laws of logic. Reality always is reality. And you're going to find out that if you impose dogmas, the world is going to push back. Your solutions aren't going to work. Uh, as you, you can't use brute force forever. Um, you yourself get older, and there are other generations coming in. You yourself will be uh, under the uh, influence of someone else, and you'll have to persuade them. When, when you start to open the discussion up, there are certain directions that it's bound to go in. You can't just insist that everyone who disagrees with me is a is a bigot. Face to face, you can't. Uh, to repress people if you sometimes need their expertise. So not to say that things will necessarily get better, but there are at least inherent forces that uh, put some break on the takeover of institutions by this kind of intellectual intolerance. Plus, we also have to make it a goal, make it a cause, make it a thing uh, to push back when, when there needs to be pushback.
1: The um, late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, shortly before he died, I talked to him in London, uh, and he was engaged in a really interesting little project. He was driving literally around, as I understand it uh, from memory, he, as he described it, uh, around Britain, just quietly talking to young people about how they saw the future. He said two things jumped out at him. One was that... Um, They had no sort of, most of them, identifiable source of um, a moral compass, if you like, because of the breakdown in traditional faith and um, loss of confidence, I suppose, even in in, in their own culture. So what they tended to do was to identify someone they admired, it might have been a grandmother or an uncle or a neighbour or a friend of their father's, and try and emulate them. That was how they tried to sort of work out how to live their lives, although that was one interesting concept. The other was that they're very aware that it's going to be tougher for them, you know, that, that they're not likely to enjoy the freedoms and the prosperities that their parents enjoyed because, frankly, we haven't run Western economies very well. That's one of the major reasons for it. But then there are other challenges. Um, we know that despair and anxiety and self-harm are running at very high levels amongst young people. Any thoughts on how we can encourage them to see the undoubted challenges before them, including those that we've created for them, frankly, as as challenges to be overcome, to be tackled, to be seen as something to, as you might say, rationally think through with an objective of turning things to advantage, rather than giving way to despair, which I suspect a lot of young people are feeling um, prey to.
2: Yes. So, and I, I I knew and I loved Rabbi Sachs. He he called me his uh, and and my wife Rebecca Goldstein his favorite atheists. (laughs) I had a very warm relationship with him and a number of public events with him, and I, I, uh, I I miss him very much. Um, I don't think it's so much the problem. There's a loss of any kind of moral compass or moral reasoning uh, or moral conviction. The problem is that it's often stated as a battle of good people and evil people where the evil people are the racists and the transphobes and the uh, and the sexists. and uh, the problem with uh, the problem with climate change is that they're the evil oil companies and uh, are plutocrats. It is a kind of morality. Uh, and I often I think the world has far too much morality because morality is exactly what licenses people to to punish the evil doers. And so tremendous harm has been caused by by at least the wrong kind of morality. Uh, I think, but there has been a failure to articulate what the right kind of morality is, and that's making people better off. That is, make, pushing back against hunger and disease and war and, and uh, violence and, and uh, accidents. Uh, our educational system, our media have to focus on that, have to remind people of really how much progress has been made, and therefore how much progress uh, is reasonable to, to strive for. It's really not true that the the today's generation live worse off than than their, than their parents. Although the rate of growth is nowhere near as high and may even be stagnating, but if you look at any measure of affluence, uh, people younger than me live much better lives. They they they, they get, have access to more music, more film. They travel more. They uh, are are healthier. Um, they live with air conditioning. I didn't grow up with air conditioning and, and clothes dryers and microwaves uh, and computers and uh, 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 portable phones. All of these would be undreamed un- of in- in- for, for a baby boomer. Uh, but granted, the economy has uh, expanded opportunities at the top. Way too much uh, compared to the, the, the middle of the, and the bottom, and that is, uh, it is a problem that has left them alienated, together with the message of doom and despair and contraction and uh, imminent extinction, that I think well, we've been far too glib at, 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 uh, at dispensing. Um, the, the message really should not be, uh, we're all doomed. Uh, that everything is worse, that it was much better in the 1960s. It wasn't better in the 1960s. Uh, it can be better still, and that's, that is why we should dedicate ourselves to a great moral quest to further improve human well-being.
1: Well, to, uh, to land the plane properly, just one final one. Um, we're told that young people now don't read as much. It's increasingly a visual and audible culture people uh, watch and listen rather than read. My experience has been that it's, it's pretty limited. My critics would say, well, you're not very good at it, but any reading I have done has improved my ability to articulate, to argue a case, to understand the other side of an argument, to learn to spot the weakness in an argument. Now, you are you know, uh, very articulate and, and, and you're known as a great prose writer so we always need people who can be, if you like, articulate, eloquent, move a crowd as long as they move it in the right direction. What's your advice for people who want to learn to be articulate, to argue a case clearly?
2: Um, probably to, to um, consume a lot of good arguments and good prose. Um, I feel uh, a little abashed saying this because I wrote a writing style manual, The Sense of Style. To give people explicit instruction as to how to be more articulate, more clear, more stylish.
1: I must find it. I hadn't I didn't know that. I must find it.
2: Yeah, called The Sense of Style. It's called the the subtitle is The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the Twenty First Century. And I dare say it's the first style manual that tries to use principles of linguistics, psycholinguistics, cognitive science, cognitive psychology to apply it to the task of writing clearer and more graceful prose, and by extension, to speak with greater force and articulateness and, and, uh, and duty. Having said that, having written a book, having, and, and, and recommending that people <laughs> read my book, I also have to say that a lot of great writers that I know, when I ask them, what, which style manuals uh, did you read that made you such a good writer? They'd say, none. Uh, I wrote one anyway. But what, they, what is universal, though, among all of them, is they did a lot of reading. Uh, and uh, not only reading good prose, but taking a moment to linger over good prose and to kind of reverse engineer it. When you come across something that seems compelling, that seems stylish, that seems graceful, that seems beautiful, just pause and think, what, what made it work? What, what was the trick that the author seemed to use? Or even just to linger over it, savor it, repeat it a few times, just let, let it sink in. Because it is a lot of patterns uh, superimposed in, in the brain that lead to what we call a, a good ear, a cultivated ear, a, a sense of style. So being a good reader and I suppose a good listener to, to, to tune into the best prose that's, that's out there is a way of uh, improving your own prose in response.
1: Well, on that note, I can only say thank you for making it so much fun to have a conversation. And I, I hope uh, my listeners, and uh, viewers, particularly in Australia, will will really pick up and benefit from your great insights. And you've been very
0: generous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day,